welcome to this Conveyancing Matters chat, which is the February 2023 Conveyancing Matters news. Welcome to Conveyancing Matters with Lorraine and Stu. Join us for a chat about all things property. So welcome everybody to unbelievably the February 2023 Conveyancing Matters news. Can't quite believe we're there already, Stu. I know, the year's absolutely flying by already, isn't it? I know, I'm looking at things for Easter and I find it quite shocking. Uh, And of course, well, National Conveyancing Week uh, coming up the week commencing the 20th of March, isn't it? That's the one, Um, yeah. Yeah. Lots going on for that, and we'll talk to us, uh, some of our conveyancing friends uh, during that week, no doubt. But um, well, come on, Stu, let's kick off the news with a, with a big positive point. What have we been yes, up to? I suppose blowing our own trumpet, uh, the first thing maybe to bring up on today's news chat would be our conveyancing live subscription launch um, night that we held at the Red Door in Rayleigh, our first sort of launch night in Essex. Yeah, it was a great venue, wasn't it? I really liked that. Um, yeah, so uh, so go to the Red Door in Rayleigh and Essex, kids. It's a lovely, lovely venue. Uh, and lovely uh, Andrew McCall from AM Surveys and uh, and his colleague attended and they kindly um, uh, sponsored the event. And I think it was a really good evening. And uh, we'll put out a little video, won't we, Stu, about... Um, Little taste uh, you know, just just to show people what we got up to, and hope that perhaps uh, perhaps that some of our sus- subscribers might want to uh, might want to come along to to future events. We've got one coming up in uh, now in Birmingham in May. I can't That's it, quite, yeah. can't quite believe it's due, but uh, but yeah, the event was really good, wasn't it? It certainly was. Yeah, I think everybody had a good time, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be uh, sort of getting around the country a bit more this year rather than just London, so uh, as many people can attend as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, I'm continuing the slight um, convincing matters, trumpet blowing, but uh, <laughs> but our um, January chat with Mike Harlow, the Deputy Chief Exec from uh, the Land Registry, uh, you know, has really, really uh, taken off, hasn't it? And there was a lot of a lot of traction, a lot of a lot of colleagues in the uh, convincing industry were were kind enough to sort of promote that, and um, and really, you know, Mike saying, well. Yes, you know, the land registry timeframes aren't great. No, I didn't mean to offend conveyances when I mentioned requisitions in a blog. And um, and I just like Mike, you know, there were a bit of adverse comment here and there, which people are entitled to Mike make. But what I liked about Mike, Stu, was I, I just thought he was sort of refreshingly honest. Yeah, he was very open, wasn't he? Very honest. Uh, and, you know, it's such a simple thing that I never really thought of. Uh, was when he made the comment that, you know, we can turn work away, but he can't, can he? He literally has to, uh, you know, complete every application that is sent to him and he has no control over what's going to be incoming. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, you know, what was clearly, a, a, you know, a, a, an interesting thing from the land registry's perspective, that, of course, they sort of promoted the chat with us and put that at the top of their own news email to firms, which uh, which I think indicated the importance to them of the chat with us so I was really pleased about that but of course to be completely balanced you know we can't talk about the land registry without mentioning uh, more strikes uh, which which unfortunately the um, you know the staff feel feel that they have to um, that they have to sort of carry out and I mean unfortunately really from their perspective rather than anybody else's but of course of course uh, you know conveyances at the coalface as well because that's clearly not going to do anything for the time turnaround times is it Stu? Well, it's certainly not going to help. And, uh, you know, even though we had that great chat, uh, we still can't ignore the problem that exists and the fact that it's all hurting law firms on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what else has caught your eye, Stu? 
I think one of the things I found interesting was an article in today's conveyancer um, regarding upfront information packs. Now, maybe not that that's a, a new subject. I think we've all spoken about this many, many times, but there's a, a particular law firm that's been looking at these packs, working with government, working with their contacts. But the interesting part of the article wasn't necessarily that it's upfront information. It was more the defective title insurance that they were advocating I assume bringing in on 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 all cases if it's if it's upfront information because they won't know about that case before they receive it. So I think potentially it could open up a a, a can of worms. Dare I say? Yeah, I think so, Stu. I mean, I agree. That's certainly the thing that I that caught my eye, um, and uh, and you know, and good on them. I mean, uh, you know, I, I I admire anybody for for having a go. I have to say, it's a it's a busy it's a busy market now. Let's be serious. Um, the the market is as fragmented as I've ever seen it. As I'm as we've talked about before, but but yeah, this idea, and I sort of did slightly wonder. Well, is this the sort of thin end of the wedge in terms of um. Uh, particularly if government has been involved, I don't know to what extent. But um, uh, as you say, Stu, if they're looking to in, in, include an indemnity insurance policy as a sort of standard with their packs, well, are we edging towards title insurance on all conveyancing? Um, I don't know. That um, that should scare quite a few conveyances out there, I must say. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think this has been something that's been spoke about since the late 90s ever, ever since i came into the industry yes. it was always said it won't be long and there'll be a policy for absolutely everything just like it is in america um that was the thing that I, you know was i was told for, for for yonks and yonks and yonks and of course that's never really taken off has it um is, no, is there I an appetite felt, for that i don't know yeah well interestingly i felt more enlightened by that when we talked when of course we talked last year to nikki from california oh. because of course something that I mean, and it sounds a bit of a trope, a, a bit of a cliche about the sort of American market. But of course, uh, nothing's that well established. So they haven't got sort of titles laden with complex covenants and easements and all the rest of it. And I mean, at the end of the day, and I'm sure, you know, perhaps we'll invite again one of, you know, one of our sort of um, indemnity insurance friends on, Stu. But, you know, the indemnity insurers in England and Wales aren't in it for fun and they're not in it, you know, because they're charities and they can give us a 150 quid policy because the risk is very low. And I suspect that, you know, people have been beavering away looking at title in England and Wales for years and have probably done the maths and realised that actually the cost of trying to indemnify title defects over here is it would be potentially so extraordinary that it wouldn't be commercially worthwhile. That would be... That would be my very, very. I, I do also guess. think that um, there must be a, a lot more detail um, than we're privy to, because of course, you know, a, a one-off policy for defective title isn't necessarily going to please your client or your lender. It's not taken into consideration the actual practical part of the issue that might be there. Um, you know, there's always this innuendo: an indemnity policy fixes absolutely everything. Well, of course, it doesn't, um, and you know having a, a defective title policy um, might not necessarily speed things up and, and might not be the answer. 
No, that's a good point, Stu, actually. And of course, lots more buyers conveyances now wanting to get their own policies, thanks to the insurance mm. insurance distribution directive, that little zinger. Um, uh, you know, and you're absolutely right. And I mean, I always characterise it when I'm training, Stu. An indemnity policy, as you rightly say, doesn't put the problem right. It just gives you exactly. a way around the problem. The problem mm. still exists. Um, so I think that's a definite watching brief. I think it's a really interesting point, actually. I should be really interested to see if... Uh, if that gains any traction, I have to say. So good luck to them, really. Yeah, um, yeah we'll, definitely. Uh, we'll perhaps have a chat to them about it, actually. So, Stu, I thought we'd move on. Uh, and, um, you know, Japanese knotweed is something that's rarely out the news. And uh, a, a, a case a few weeks ago sort of hit the, uh, you know, hit all the um, newspapers uh, because, um, you know, a, a two, you know, nice middle-class people, <laughs> a seller and a buyer, uh, bought and sold a house and knotweed was found hiding behind a you know a bush next to a shed uh, and basically the buyer sued the seller in misrepresentation and won but that was in the um central london county court i think but what might have passed people by is that we've actually got a newer uh, even even newer uh, more recent case from the court of appeal on knotweed so really Stu, uh you know and it was again relating to it was relating to the tort of nuisance Mm. Uh, and the extent to which uh, a nuisance claim could be made uh, for not we being on a neighbouring property. Um, uh, so in the interests of shameless plugs, I um, just want to really point out to people that actually we will do our March 2023 CPD webinar on the knotweed issues and the, the, the issues particularly surrounding, you know, conveyances at the coalface stew won't we so that's what yeah. our march 2023 cpd webinar for our subscribers will be on no definitely we've been sort of sparring i think with knotweed for a while now as a profession haven't we and it's, it's getting to that point now where we're, we're possibly coming for the, the knockout punch um where it's really going to affect conveyances over the coming year i mean i, I found something interesting about knotweed myself uh fairly recently and i didn't realize it didn't flower in winter um so if you're, oh, looking, yes. if you're looking for knotweed at the right. moment um you won't find it that's the problem. That's the problem. If you're buying yeah. a house between, yeah, sort of October and March, there's just basically yeah. no evidence of it because it literally oh. all dies back, just all under yeah. the ground. There's there's virtually no evidence of it. Oh, no, that's it. And of course, we've we've also fairly recently been talking about other invasive um, plants and species and bamboo and and Christ knows what. So we we really are moving. I think um, not weed and, in, and invasive species to another level now, aren't we? So it's something we're so. going to try and try and sort of thrash out in depth. Um, in our next chat, aren't we, uh, for the, our subscription uh, and followers? Yeah, absolutely. Well, because I, th I think the thing is, we've got two very distinct and completely linked, obviously, sort of points to make, because obviously we now do have a bit of a body of case law. We now do have yeah. a very recent Court of Appeal case, uh, and it affects, you know, you guys at the coalface every single day, uh, because it's on the PIF. So there's lots to talk about there. Mm -hmm. So moving on, Stu, conscious of time and all that, um, sort of tiny point, really, that I just want to mention. I mean, the Land Registry very helpfully produces sort of uh, updates on its practice guide and gives us alerts and so on and so forth, which I obviously sort of cast through every month um, and really only mention those that I think are of, of, of real sort of day-to-day -day relevance for conveyances. But they have mentioned a tiny update to practice guide six, which I just think is, you know, anything we can do to prevent a requisition, uh, Stu, is, is a good thing. And um, they have mentioned in relation to practice guide six, which is devolution on death of a, of, of a registered proprietor, that um, uh, they've amended to clarify that where a conveyance's certificate is lodged, 
in support of an application. The uh, certificate must confirm that the grant of probate letters or administ of administration or court order isn't limited. So if you do, and it would be, the thing is, it would be relatively rare to have a limited grant in, in the normal sort of grind of day-to-day -day conveyancing. So it's just one of those sort of slightly quirky things that might um, that might catch a conveyancer out. And as I say, anything we can do to, to, to avoid a requisition six months into the application is a good thing. So just to make it clear that if you're giving a certificate in relation to um, grants of probate, letters of administration or court orders, you do actually have to certify in the conveyancer certificate that that document isn't limited. That's all I wanted to say. So uh, over to you, Stu. Yeah, so... Again, without sort of labouring on this point, um, we can't really not, you know, mention um, the Building Safety Act 2022 because it's something really that is sort of, you know, gaining more and more and more momentum. And I think rather than maybe discuss it in depth today, it's, it's another series we're going to do and something else we're going to look at um, within our next sort of uh, series of events. So we're going to really sort of thrash out the detail in it and give everybody a, a, a proper rundown in our sort of April and uh, May um, subscriber series, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the lenders are continuing to impose what well, some of them sort of more and more onerous obligations on conveyances. And I think a lot of conveyances actually haven't really started to open their eyes to the to the issues relating to the Building Safety Act. So, um, I mean, certainly for the purpose of, you know, our February news, you know, all conveyances need to be checking the lender's requirements in relation to this because, and you know, a new section to the uh, to the handbook has been added. So um, it's very much a you know very much a watching brief, a very narrow topic. And as you say, we will uh, we'll talk about it um, uh, in in our CPD videos. Yeah. But really, sort of linked to that, uh, and I think what's interesting about the potential scope of the acts, due is that um, I mean, it has been reported. Um, the first tier tribunal has made its first remediation contribution order under the Building Safety Act, uh, where basically uh, the, um, the first tier tribunal property chamber ordered a landlord to repay amounts paid by leaseholders under service charge, um, which had been used to put right historic fire safety defects. But I think what's interesting about this, Stu, is that at the moment, I think, uh, and I would, to be honest, say me included in this. I'm not sort of certainly not, you know, um, uh, uh, sort of suggesting that, that that I'm, you know, bigger and clever than everybody else. Quite, quite the contrary. But I think a lot of us still think in terms of the Building Safety Act requirements in relation sort of to cladding. We think about uh, the cladding issues as being, and they, of course, the terrible events of Grenfell were the sort of driver for, yeah. for the production of this, frankly, really rather grim statute. But I think the interesting thing about the the, the the recent case is that the issue didn't relate to cladding. It related to balconies. Um, and I just think conveyances need to have a sort of a, a weather eye uh, and an awareness and an understanding, really, that sort of fire safety issues are, are way beyond um, cladding, I think, Most is definitely. the point. Uh, and I think that this this whole uh, this whole thing is going to run and run. I mean, you just mentioned that, you know, um, Japanese knotweed is likely to sort of, you know, go viral. And I suspect, uh, you know, the cost of, of, of remediation and, 
uh, what's going to be recovered for sort of fire risk more generally is, is, is probably going to go the same direction, really, Stu. Most definitely. And of course, that's why we're going to cover it in depth, aren't we, in the next few Yeah, years. absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so a little sort of um, uh, twiddly point that you've noticed, Stu, but I think very relevant for firms because it affects every single letter that they send out. <laughs> yes, our friends at the League of London. So Leo are making some changes, aren't they? I think it's the 1st of April 2023. There are going to be new timeframes that firms need to adhere to. So it's most definitely worthwhile uh, jumping onto their website. Um, I think they even give you still standard templates you can use and whatnot. So uh, definitely, uh, if firms haven't already done so, uh, you need to jump on there, see the changes, see when they're uh, effective from and, and make sure, of course, your standard templates accord with uh, with what they're saying and, and what you need to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, again, just just my just my personal guess, rather anything more more um, considered, Stu. But uh, you know, I think part of the driver around the changes to the uh, ombudsman sort of timeframes for making the complaints may well uh, some of some of that may well uh, feed into their own sort of KPIs and metrics, quite frankly. But um, but they have. Um, um, Come, as you say, come up with guidance which firms should go and look at. Not every conveyancer, but anybody watching this might want to check that firms have changed their, you know, their client care letters, uh, final decision letters, website information. Um, that's all got to be, um, uh, you know, changed and up, up and running by the 1st of April. But as you say, Leo has tried to make it easy for firms by um, uh, including suggested wording for the client care letters. So hopefully it won't be too bad. Um well, pushing on, Stu, I just wanted to just sort of remind firms sort of more generally, really, about the sort of vagaries of, of, of email um, because it's so ubiquitous. We use it every day. And I always think it's just worth just sort of stopping and having a think for a moment when, uh, you know, our higher courts mention anything. Because in a recent case, the the Court of Appeal, and it's an interesting case for, for property lawyers more generally, I might do you know, might do a webinar, I suppose. But the Court of Appeal had to decide whether a beneficial interest had been released. And the, um, the the nub of it was really, in relation to the email sort of comments that the Court of Appeal made, is that the common intention that one of the parties relied on was, was in an exchange of emails. Um, and basically, the Court of Appeal held that um, it uh, it was possible to, to essentially release uh, an equitable interest by email uh, because, um, uh, you know, the Law of Property Act um, requires that um, a disposition of an equitable interest in land should be made, quote, in writing and signed by the person disposing of the same. And the Court of Appeal had no difficulty, no hesitation in holding that the, and an email doing that complied with the statutory formalities. And of course, we had a case um, uh, not that long ago where it was specifically found against a law firm that actually an exchange of emails with your sort of signatory at the bottom uh, of the email was sort of sufficient to constitute signing. So I just think firms, and, and clearly, you know, firms aren't going to be writing to their clients saying don't release an equitable interest by email, kids. But I think what firms need to be more aware of is what their staff are saying and doing. Um, right yeah. now. And I think that's really the wider point. Um, and whether or not firms, for example, want to be thinking about uh, you know, should they be putting some sort of uh, sort of limitation on on emails around um, the authority 
that people sending emails have within that firm to enter into contracts, make statements, whatever, whatever. Because there is a bit of a sort of line of authority on that now, Stu. And it just it just popped the the the, the concerns of emails back into my head, really. And I always think, as I say, when I hire courts, comment, we ought to sit up and listen, really. Um, but um, but uh, but anyway. Um, and, I, you know, an interesting one, again, for firms, I think uh, some firms struggle with this, and I'd be interested to know your view from, from the CLC rather than the SRA side of the fence. But the SRA accounts rules moving on have got a requirement, uh, quite rightly, I'd say, the client account mustn't be used as a banking facility. Um, and uh, essentially, um, the difficulty that some firms seem to have is the interpretation that, uh, of the of the phrase in the accounts rules that payments into and transfers or withdrawals must be made in respect of the delivery of regulated services. Mm. So if you're putting client money into and out of your client account, uh, it's got to be in relation to, uh, as I say, uh, in connection with a current file, really. And firms might be, I mean, it was introduced now as far back as 2004, Stu, but firms might be interested to know that... Um, uh, the SRA has actually recently put up more guidance about it. Um, and I just think that might be quite helpful for firms, but also staff working within firms. I mean, conveyancing, we have so much money coming in. We have so many requests from clients to send money on completion. That's the big one, isn't it? I mean, what's your view? Yeah, of course it is. It's uh, the difficulty, of course, is where you, uh, you know, you're taking instructions from a client, then they ask you to do or make payments, should I say, um, you know, which may not be exactly relevant to the actual transaction, uh, potentially distributing net sale proceeds, uh, where they're going and for what purpose. Um, that's the difficulty, I think. Uh, it's the client's money. Um, so can't you send it to so-and-so and, and, and whatnot? So, uh, again, I think you could look at it half full or half empty. Uh, it does limit the retainer and it does make it easy for you to rely on something that you, know, you don't have to do all this extra work for your client. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and the SRA have certainly sort of stuck guidance out there and basically said, well, you know, if you're paying on an, in relation to the net sale proceeds, if you're paying the estate agent, for example, that's absolutely fine with your client's authority, of course, because it's part of the, the transaction. perceived yeah. conveyancing process and the transaction. But if your client says to you, can you send you know, part of the net sale proceeds, you know, to Bob's garage to buy him a new car, then the answer to that is no, <laughs> and should be no, because that's not part of the retainer, that's not part of the delivery of regulated services. And I have to say, I do think one where firms should be very, very careful, not only of the regulatory requirements, but just the risks more generally. Of course, if a client who perhaps is a PR and they've got the grant themselves uh, who comes to the firm and says, well, here's the list of 10 beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. you know, can you send the uh, net sale proceeds to all of these beneficiaries? And I think it's very straightforward. I think the firm should be saying no. Mm -hmm. It's very, very simple in my view. Um, and there's, you know, let's face it, transactions are long enough now, Stu, that it's uh, we can say to a personal representative uh, client at the beginning of a matter, go and yeah. open the executive's bank account. And if they can't or won't do that, and I have anecdotally heard that that's, can sometimes be trickier for people to do. Uh, well, if the money is going to go into the personal representative's own personal bank account, um, then we probably need to do, more, do no more than sort of warn the client at the risk of mixing their own yeah. money with that of the estate. Uh, but under no circumstances should firms be faffing about paying uh, paying you know beneficiaries. No, but it wouldn't be under our retainer, would it? No, no, no it's, never... it's different if 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 the probate referral came from your 
probate department because all you would then do is transfer the net sale proceeds to your firm's probate ledger and they yeah. would distribute it because it's their retainer. But where we don't have that link, uh, and it, it, as I say, it's just sort of John Smith that's gone out and got his uh, gone out, got his own grant. Um, uh, you know, the, the the answer I think is very simple: no. Uh, but as I say, there's more. Same, it's the same with repayment of loans, isn't it? You know, if it's a secured loan, obviously, but it's where, you know, a client may have uh, other debts, should we say, and they're maybe, you know, discharging those out the net sale proceeds, again, wouldn't be part of something nope. we should be getting involved in. No, nope, absolutely not. Um, you're using, you're running, absolutely running the risk of using client account as a banking facility. I just don't see why firms would even want to take the risk of thinking about it. But as I say, for those who are interested, the SRA has stuck out a bit more guidance. And to be honest, I think it's, uh, you know, the fact that it's SRA is 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 irrelevant in the sense that I think it would just general practical implicate, you know, um, uh, uh, application for for all firms, including CLC regulated. I have to say. Uh, so anything else for you, Stu? There's, there's one final incy-wincy one, isn't there, uh, which is potentially the uh, the use of the fax machine. It's um, it's still there, um, but Nationwide and the Mortgage Works have recently uh, said that uh, they're ceasing communication by fax, aren't they? So we are moving forward maybe to the modern age, but uh, still some banks are holding on, but an another two are gone now. So, um, yeah, it, Hopefully yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, of course, we've talked about this before, Stu, because we we crawled back a few years ago to the use of facts because of the, the cyber risk and the yep. cyber security risk. The irony. Um, say again? The irony of it. I know. I, and I actually met a guy who said, well, using facts is as dangerous as using email. I don't know because I'm not a techie. Um, but that was why. I mean, we everybody sort of burnt their faxes like, you know, people burnt their bras in the 60s and then had to sort of, you know, go, go and get that facility again. Um, and I think if lenders stop sending email, you know, redemption figures by email, which is the massive risk that we're all trying to mitigate against, uh, and they use sort of proper secure channels, then happy days. But but of course, you know, and I know, Stu, that, that lots of them don't. So it's really... I think this is I think this is where it becomes a bit tricky, isn't it? Um, it kind of seems that from our point of view, uh, we have to use the facts. But from a lender's point of view, they go against their their ethos of, of what they're saying in terms of us communicating with them. So I, I can never really get my head around why it's OK for uh, a lender to send us a redemption figure, like you say, yet we can't request one or we can't, um, you know, the same way around it doesn't really make any logical sense does it no well and as i say if they if the perceived risk is relating to cyber security and the interception of emails why is it okay for a lender to send yeah. a redemption request by an unencrypted email i, I simply i've I simply make failed exactly to understand right. that 100 yeah it doesn't make any sense uh and, the, and all that is doing is increasing the burden on the conveyancer who presumably has then got to fiddle around and sit around on the phone to the lender for an absolute age to confirm the details in the uh, in the unencrypted email that the lender has sent. Now I could be talking cobblers, and there might be something really, you know, strategic going on there, but I can't see it myself. I've got to. No, say. I don't think there is, and it's difficult, isn't it? Because obviously each lender has a different a different yeah. criteria, and that's what makes it a bit tricky when you're trying to deal with numerous completions or exchanges or whatever you you know doing whatnot. Um, and then you've got to evaluate how that you how you communicate with someone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I um, yeah, I I, I sort of I, I struggle with the disparity 
I struggle for I struggle. You're right. You hit it up the nail on the head there, Stu. But I do struggle in the sense with the one rule for us and the one rule for all of you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, attitude, really. So I, I really thought with you know with with LMS and Lender Exchange that you know the days of sort of communication via direct email, even or or fax, were were going to be coming to an end. But it's certainly taken its time, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, we don't want to finish uh, the February Conveyancy Matters news on a, on a downbeat note, Stu. So, um, so let's conclude where we uh, sort of finish where we started, Stu, with another sort of shameless plug for um, our new uh, Conveyancy Matters subscription service. We've got some lovely people that have joined us. And fundamentally, for, um, for £40 a year, people can have access to quite a lot of webinars plus uh, one new webinar a month. Uh, one new CPD webinar a month, and uh, if you're a firm, you can have um, that for £150 a year, and 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 for that, people can also come to our events as well. So, what's not to like, Stu? And Absolute for anybody bargain. watching, um, the little we've got, we're going to be offering just sending those people who've been kind enough to join us a little welcome pack, and we've finally got some, uh, finally got a little bits of merchandise that we're going to put in it. So, if any of our subscribers are watching, your welcome pack is coming out soon. So. Uh, so, um, well, thanks for that, Stu. I actually, no problems. We, we often get to the end of our chat and think, oh, there was more to talk about than we thought. Um, <laughs> but maybe that's you and me. So uh, I will see you soon, Stu. Take care now. Take care. Bye. Bye.